Welcome, everyone, to another Crisis Conversation live from the Better Life Lab. We're delighted to have you here with us today, where we're talking about navigating pregnancy through COVID-19, but beyond that, really looking at the health of pregnant mothers, pregnant workers, how they fare in the workplace, and what we need to do to ensure their health and safety, as well as their ability to continue working if that's what they need and choose to do, not only during the crisis, but beyond. Today, we've got just a a wealth of wonderful people who can share stories and also share their expertise. We've got Kushbu Shah. She's the interim editor-in-chief of The Fuller Project, which is a global nonprofit newsroom dedicated to objective, groundbreaking reporting on women, and everyone should subscribe to their newsletter. It's amazing. Rebecca Pontikas, uh, she's the principal of Pontikas Law, LLC, who specializes in caregiver and pregnancy discrimination cases. We've got Dina Baxt, a co-founder and co-president of A Better Balance, which seeks to ensure that no workers, including pregnant workers, have to choose between job, health, or family. We've got Gabrielle Cavrell McNeil. She's the director of workforce development for New Moms, an organization in Chicago that's dedicated to supporting new mothers in the core areas of life, home, jobs, and family. And we have Dr. Ashley Deutsch. She's the Director of Quality and Patient Safety for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. We're going to start with you because uh, you're not only a a medical expert at at this time of a global pandemic, but you have a situation where you are also pregnant and you worked with your employer to to both ensure the your health and safety, the health and safety of your child, but also continue working and supporting your family. Ashley, Dr. Deutsch, let's start with you. And since we are in the middle of a pandemic, what can you tell us about what pregnant mothers, pregnant workers are really facing? Uh, can you tell us what we know and what we don't know about navigating corona while pregnant? Sure. And thank you so much for having me. In terms of what we know about coronavirus and pregnancy, the answer is still not much. Mm -hmm. Our understanding is is always changing, but it's not really clear um, what the impacts are, especially at the very beginning. We weren't even really sure how it was transmitted. Um, At this point, we think that there might be a higher risk of more severe illness for pregnant women. We know that there have been some newborns who have tested positive for coronavirus shortly after birth, Mm. but we do not know if they contracted the virus before, during, or after. Mm. Um, We believe the best evidence shows that it is safe for breastfeeding mothers who um, who test positive for coronavirus to continue breastfeeding their infants while wearing a mask and washing hands frequently and before all feeds. Um, and that the benefit likely outweighs the the risk in that mm-hmm. case. But truly, it's sort of a brand new world for medicine and certainly for pregnant women. And so it's it's hard for all of us to gauge what our risk is with pregnancy and coronavirus. You know, so Ashley, we're going to get back to you about your, your own story in a minute. But let's go to Kushbu Shah. So Kushbu, um, you have a number of reporters who have been scouring the earth, so to speak, for, for stories, uh, particularly how the pandemic is impacting women and their, their experience. And some of your reporters have really written some very powerful stories uh, about not only uh, pregnant workers, but also maternal health, and particularly looking at racial equity. 
that's what we have been looking at at the Fuller Project even before coronavirus, right? That intersection between um, the lack of access to solid maternal health care and that link to maternal mortality and how it is sometimes the worst in some communities for Black and brown women. And so when we saw the coronavirus cases rising and impacting communities of color, predominantly Black Americans all across the U.S., we knew that that was the first place to look, right? That's where we could really dig in um, and report on what we were we knew would be a double public health crisis. Right. Um, and so we started off, right, as Dr. Deutsch mentioned, when we didn't know a whole lot about how it would impact pregnant women. We spoke to a number of women around the country um, with our contributing reporter, Eileen Guo, who spoke to women who were about to give birth about to go to hospitals, who some one of whom was homeless, who couldn't find diapers, who was told that her community doula um, wouldn't be able to support her during labor, um, mm-hmm. someone she had practiced with um, for nearly nine months. And then um, when restrictions were tightest in California and no one could join her for her labor. And so she faced giving birth alone. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's what happened to her. I just, I, I just can't, I can't imagine how devastating that's got to be for anyone. Right. And she, and on top of that, she had nowhere to go afterwards with her newborn baby. And so she was facing the prospect of raising this child essentially in solitude and giving birth Mm -hmm. um, by herself. As the weeks went by, we realized that there were different threads of this continuing conversation to look at. And our reporter, Jessica Washington, found in Milwaukee, where a fifth of the city's coronavirus cases back then were among its Black residents, Mm. Um, the city's health commissioner said she had heard anecdotally that there were upticks in miscarriages and stillbirths during the pandemic, predominantly among Black and brown women. Mm. And so then Jesse reported on that next step. She spoke to a mother of two, an essential worker at a fast food restaurant, who was making this impossible decision to leave her children in daycare where one of them had contracted coronavirus. Oh, wow. Um, But she was a fast food worker and her family um, relied on her money from her job at Wendy's. And so she had to make an impossible decision. Did she end up working and paying the bills or did she... Um, but if she quit, how would she pay the bills? But then she would leave her child um, in the center of this public health crisis. Right, right. And as a fast food worker, she was also one of those who was carved out of emergency paid family leave legislation. She was carved out of emergency paid sick days legislation. So it sounds like she didn't really have many options. So at this point, let me turn to you, Dina. When I first started learning about this several years ago, I had never even heard of pregnancy discrimination. It's not something that we talked about or paid attention to. It was a real invisible issue. What is pregnancy discrimination? What do pregnant workers really face in in the United States before the pandemic? And what are they facing now? How's it making it different or worse? So... Unfortunately, pregnancy discrimination, decades after passage of the Federal Pregnancy Discrimination Act in 1978, is still alive and well in this country, and it takes many forms. You know, many people may be more familiar with the type of discrimination saying that you can't take adverse action, you can't cut someone's hours or fire them just on the basis of the fact that they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um A form of discrimination that we see particularly with low-wage workers, low-income women, particularly um, women of color who call our helpline, are women who are in low-wage and physically demanding jobs, and they need um, a modest temporary adjustment to their work hours or duty schedules in order to maintain their health 
um, yeah. and continue earning a paycheck, right? So pre-pandemic, you know, this is a huge issue. You know, women who has a temporary, uh, maybe a high-risk pregnancy, doctor advises no heavy lifting, employer says no, go home. What that means is a profound, um, that has a profound impact on their econ- long-term economic equality. Oftentimes they wind up homeless on food stamps. Mm. Um, and we have dozens and dozens of stories of around this, which has led to um, passage of laws around the country to really say, no, we need to ensure that pregnant workers, you know, have a clear rights to accommodation in these situations, just as workers' disabilities. And this is the type of bias, as I said, snowballs into lasting economic disadvantage and is one reason that motherhood and poverty, particularly for women of color, are so inextricably linked, right? It's, yeah. this is, you know, it's a driver of econ- long-term economic inequality. So at the current moment, we are hearing from pregnant workers, you know, who are scared to death, frankly, to return to work, especially those in essential jobs, but also those who are just required now to be back at work. They, in many instances, know that they're returning to an unsafe workplace, but they feel like they have no other choice to continue working. And so I just want to underscore there is CDC guidance, but um, this is often um, an important um, conversation that a pregnant worker is going to have with her own medical provider. Yeah. It's an individualized assessment about a, what a pregnant worker's need, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. And we provide um, you know, very detailed information on a Better Balances website about how to ask for accommodations, and there are clear protections for pregnant workers who are at higher risk, like that may trigger protections under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So if you have um, gestational diabetes or preeclampsia, you know, that may entitle you concretely to certain enforcing rights around distancing or PPE or transfers, or some women may be able to telecommute. So there are rights that do exist. um, And so it's important that pregnant women do know the rights that are in the books now to help them. Yeah, so some of the stories that you've brought up over the years, you know, you talk about some pregnant women who needed water or they've needed a stool to sit on instead of being, you know, standing all day as a cashier. I remember working on a, uh, on a story when I was at the Washington Post about a police officer who just needed you know, a bulletproof vest that fit over her growing body and not getting those kinds of accommodations, then women were made kind of put into this terrible situation where they had to choose between working in a way that might harm their health versus being able to continue working and and support their family. You know, at this point, let me turn to you, Gabrielle, and with the new moms, you work a lot with women who are pregnant, with, who are about to deliver. What are you seeing now with the pandemic? How is that impacting the, the mothers that you work with? Some of the things that we're seeing and hearing are mirror those that uh, Kushbu and Dina explained around women not knowing that they have access or not having access, uh, delivering on their own in the hospital uh, because the doula is no longer able to be with them at their bedside as they're giving birth. And they give birth and then they're very fearful about going back to work, about having access to childcare. In Chicago, there was a mass push to get moms the resources that they need, particularly from um, our agency. So we were, you know, hand delivering things like diapers and formula because Mm -hmm. we weren't able to uh, go to their local stores and retrieve those items because the lack of access has been an issue. But it's just an overwhelming feeling of fear and miseducation, Mm -hmm. not knowing that they have these workplace rights. I literally have heard women say, well, I didn't know I could apply for work right now because I'm pregnant or wow to wait until my 
child was at least six weeks before I could apply to start working. Hmm. And there's, there's, there's just, uh, just miseducation uh, and misinformation out here about what their rights are. And so a part of the work that we want to do is make sure that our women are armed with this, with this information and that they know their rights and they know how to exert their rights. And when they are going back into the workplaces, there's also a safety issue. We know Mm -hmm. that they're going back to work and they're not being given the tools or the safety guidelines or following safety guidelines to keep themselves safe because they do have to go back home to their child. A lot of our women live in multi-generational households. Mm -hmm. And so that is, you know, they're toggling that line between safety and financial security. You know, when we were talking um, the other day, one of the things that you said really struck me as well, that we've been talking about pregnancy discrimination or what happens when you're on the job, but that some of the mothers that you've that you've worked with, they experience that before they even get the job, that, that's, uh, that, that their pregnancy becomes part of what works against them in the hiring process. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there is this fear of if I go into the workplace and they see that I'm pregnant, does that put me at a disadvantage for getting this job? this tone that I won't be um, looked at or considered because of my skills or my abilities or what I actually bring to the table, but versus the barriers that I bring because I might have maternity leave or I may have family responsibilities, things that men don't have to worry about when they go into <laughs> right. the interviewing process. Right. Right. Uh, and younger women, a lot of these uh, women, this is their first job or their first you know, real job is how they would explain it a lot of times. And there's, there's a fear around that. Am I going to be looked at because I'm a liability to this employer yeah. uh, because of my responsibilities at home and just empowering them with the information that, listen, you have something to offer. You deserve um, to work, especially if that's what you want to do. You deserve the right to have, have safety and have your children be safe um, and to be able to earn a living wage uh, so you can take care of yourself and, and your family. Uh, they want as much information as they can get before they see the interviewer and go into the workplace so that they know in advance. You know, if they ask me this, is this okay? Uh, or are they allowed to ask me those right. questions? And right. uh, only those answers are no, <laughs> they are right. not. Uh, but it's a matter of just knowing. Right, right. So Rebecca, you're a lawyer. You've specialized in pregnancy discrimination cases when things get so bad that you actually go you know, into the legal system to try to get remedy. And what are you seeing now? Are there more cases being filed, you know, during coronavirus? How are workplaces responding? What are pregnant women sort of experiencing? Talk a little bit about kind of the legal landscape out there. Um, At first, um, I told people when they were asking me, like back in March, I said, wait, I said, just hang on, it's going to come. And it's That's really sad. That's sad. (laughs) I well, and I knew this was going to happen because what I was hearing from people was this employer attitude that all bets are off because of COVID. Mm. Well, that would be wrong. Um, Employees, and I said this at the time, I said, remember, employees still have rights, Mm -hmm. whether it's the new law that was passed by Congress immediately or the laws that were already there, such as pregnant accommodation, you know, Pregnant Workers Fairness Acts. We have, with Dina's help, we passed one in Massachusetts, but these were all still in effect and coronavirus didn't wipe them out or wipe out obligations. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not how a lot of employers were acting. Um, in Massachusetts, we had a very high-profile case of a nurse, uh, Dr. Deutsch probably has heard about it, um, in Springfield, who 
it appeared from the reporting there wasn't even a conversation with her about accommodating her uh, or whether that was even possible. And the law in Massachusetts requires it. So there should have at least been an, um, a conversation with her about it, but that wasn't had. Hmm. Uh, and this stems back to this idea that I think Gabrielle put it really well, that pregnant workers are a burden on the workplace. And hmm. this is their problem. They're a burden here. And it's not our problem for what has to happen. You either choose to be pregnant or you choose to go home. Hmm. Um, and so that's why we pass these laws. Um, so I, I would say that what we're seeing is, um, what's that expression, new wine and old skin or something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's um, it's the same, same old, same old. Pregnant workers are a burden and a lot of employers want to try to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Uh, hmm. There was a report I read of a um, of the case you told me about, Bridget, in California um, the worker announced that she was pregnant and same old playbook. Uh, they started giving her the worst jobs, the hardest jobs. She had to lift 50 pounds. And when people tried to help her, they were told they, they were ordered not to. Wow. Um, and, you know, she sought uh, accommodations because of coronavirus and they instead sent her to sanitize. So they put her in closer contact with the virus. Mm. Um, and then they fired her and said her performance was poor. That's, that's the same old playbook. <laughs> uh, there, there's not too much new about that. And, and I, I wanted to make one last comment. Um, it's something Shubu said, which was um, the, about the impossible decisions. Yeah. And what we have to remember is that the general default rule in America is something called employment at will, which gives people very, very few rights, like really no rights at all. Hmm. Pregnant Workers Fairness Acts are very important because they actually give you some rights. And the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act gives you some rights. But the way the legal system works is that the employer can act and then the worker has to fight to get the rights back. Hmm. And where you have, in, especially with women in low-wage jobs that don't have health insurance, that have no unions, that's a really tough position to be in. You know, telling a low-wage worker, you know, if they fire you, you have a lawsuit. Great. Um, that's not what she wants. What she wants is a job. She wants the right. money. She needs to pay her bills. So I think that's it's all important to think of all those things together because that's why these impossible decisions are being forced on pregnant workers. So at this point, let's turn back to you, Dr. Deutsch. So talk about your own experience. Sure. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to first acknowledge that my experience is very clearly the result of a couple of different privileges that I have. Um, I work for a healthcare organization, so they're uh, up to date and, lit and literate about public health, first of all. Um, I have a degree that allows some flexibility. There are many things that sort of work in my favor that other people don't necessarily have. Um, but for me, as an emergency physician, you know, I, I treat, I evaluate, come in contact with patients with infectious disease all the time. And that's, that's part of the job. And I did that all through my first pregnancy. Um, what's different with coronavirus is, is largely the unknown. We, especially when it started, did not know how it spread. We're still learning more about that. So it's hard to know how to protect yourself. It's hard to know if there's any risk to a pregnant woman or a fetus. And so it was really just a whole new aspect to my job. Mm -hmm. um, and so as an organization, Bay State Medical Center, the HR department had sent out a, um, an email saying, if you, you know, if you're thinking about this, your higher risk and requesting accommodations, here's how you go about it. They were quite proactive about that. Um, and so I sent something back saying, I think at the time I was 24 weeks pregnant, and I was requesting to not be in contact with 
patients who may have coronavirus. Right. Um, Which is a very reasonable thing to ask, right? Very reasonable (laughs) thing to ask. Well, yes. Although I will say um, that was granted to me. They coordinated with infectious disease to make sure that these were reasonable requests. They agreed. Um, as an emergency physician, it quickly became entirely impossible to avoid patients who may have coronavirus. Yeah. And at that point, the organization left it to my department for how best to utilize me in a different capacity. And so for me, um, the department was wonderful in terms of um, allowing me to take on telehealth for patients who don't have primary care physicians. So we were serving a patient population that needed that, but I could do that from home um, for for calling back test results, coronavirus test results, because we felt it was beneficial to our patients to speak with a physician at a time when information was really changing frequently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And administratively to help with the policies and procedures within the entire hospital of how do we keep our our patients and our staff safe. And that was Mm -hmm. something I could also do from home and and have been doing since, uh, since April. I would say for the organization, they have sort of earned my undying gratitude over the way that they handled this and and certainly lots of loyalty um, because both the department and Bay State Medical Center could have pushed back against these accommodations. And frankly, with all of my, even with all of my privilege, I would have had to go back to work clinically seeing patients. We, mm. we can't afford for me not to go to get paid during this yeah. time. So um, even in that position, I, I would have been forced to go back. So, Dina, I see you nodding your head, and I and I've been hearing you sighing <laughs> throughout the 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 podcast. I you know, <laughs> no, no, but but it's you know this these are issues that you hear about all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the things that um, you know we were like uh, Rebecca had mentioned the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act which is sort of enshrines in law that that pregnant workers need and deserve reasonable accommodations to in, in order to keep them working that's only passed in 27 states what what do we do from here uh, what are, what are we learning through covid what's becoming more and more apparent how do we move forward well i mean cuz covid has really laid bare these inequalities and these privileges and you know i'm able to telecommute and but the women we hear from every day don't have employers like the one you just described and are really forced to make impossible choices. They are employers that are not following OSHA, that are not following the CDC. And they are forced to choose between earning a paycheck and maintaining their health. And it's just unacceptable, you know, that we live in a world where this is still a problem, you know, mm-hmm. and thankfully we now have 30 states, actually, Tennessee um, oh, wow. most recently passed with with um you know, chamber support, which is a promising sign that even the U.S. chamber actually expressed support for the Federal Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. So this is an issue that, you know, if we want to keep the economy running, we need to ensure pregnant workers can stay healthy and on the job. And the Federal Pregnant Worker Fairness Act would create a uniform law to ensure that pregnant workers can get the immediate accommodations they need to stay healthy and on the job. I totally agree with Rebecca. I mean, the women who call our helpline, they're not calling necessarily to sue their employer. They're scared out of their minds and they want to say, what do I need to know and how do I keep my job? And so that's the framework, what this law would put in a place, a clear framework to help put women do just that. Yeah. So um, we need, you know, as we think about the recovery and we think about what needs to be put in place along with other measures like paid family and medical leave and quality affordable child care, we need the Federal Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. 
Gabrielle, let me let me turn to you kind of as you've been listening to the conversation, you think about the the young mothers that you're helping. What do you see? Where what do we need to learn? What do we need to be doing? Um, you know, I just remember covering a Supreme Court case where a UPS worker who was pregnant and was not supposed to lift heavy stuff. And all she wanted to do was sort of deliver letters and she was not allowed. And that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And that just seems so ridiculous and a waste of time and let her deliver letters and then let her go back to work after she gives birth. You know, what do you see um, that we need to do kind of moving forward? How do we make this better for the moms that you work with? Yeah, moving forward, um, and we work with women just like that, but someone saw her, someone gave her the information, they partnered with her to push this to the Supreme Court. She had to have a, a lot of allies in that process. And so what I would say is be someone who can amplify a voice of someone who was unseen and unheard in these circumstances and use the power and privilege that you may have in whatever position that is to move this forward and to make this more seen. And so the the fact that this was such an underlying issue for so long and COVID had to bring it out is in itself problematic. Mm. So any way that you can bring these things to the forefront, continue to educate, continue to just amplify the voices uh, that are so long silenced uh, is, is where I would say we need to focus our efforts. Yeah. So Kushbu, as you're thinking about, you know, uh, coverage moving forward, um, you know, I, what are you thinking about in, in terms of, of uh, what you'll continue to be to, to be watching and looking at when it comes to pregnant workers, pregnant women, new mothers? Well, Gabrielle just hit it on the head, you know, and I think um, Dina has highlighted this. We're, we're going to continue looking at systemic inequalities, right, that sort of feed into the inequity in maternal health care in the U.S. And so now we're looking at the next step of all the stories that we um, have talked about in this program. And our reporters are looking at how child care deserts, these new child care deserts nationwide are affecting working mothers, mm-hmm. how this potential end to $600, these weekly benefits will, will affect unemployed mothers and what this ever-changing pandemic um, and what this landscape will mean for mothers and pregnant women alike as we begin to unearth you know, what the impact will be on women. Mm-hmm. So, Re- Rebecca, f- closing thoughts. Uh, I know we could we could all talk about this for ages and we all want to, you know, to, to, to make this better. How do we put you out of business? <laughs> How do we make it that, so that lawyers like you do not need to be taking up cases for pregnancy discrimination? It, my view has always been that workers need more rights in general. I mean, to echo what Gabrielle and Shubu were saying and, and what Dina was saying about the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, Workers don't have a lot of rights in this country. And when you don't have a lot of rights, that means you're not valued as a human. Mm. Um, and you're not valued, you're a cog in a wheel. You're, you know, these workers are being treated like they're a thing on a shelf instead of a human. Um, and I've always, I've come to the conclusion after 22 years of doing this, that when people don't have rights in the workplace, they aren't valued as human beings. Mm. And that makes all of the systemic prejudices we have, the racism, sexism, it makes it worse. And I think workers in this country need more rights in general. And I think the whole idea of business prerogative, you know, taking um, precedence over everything else is wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we as a nation have to stop thinking that way. Uh, We can look at other parts of the world that are doing very well, that have good economies, that don't run theirs the way we run ours. It's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if anything's been laid bare by this pandemic, it's what happens when you don't give working people rights 
And when you don't recognize that having a job and the need for income and the need for economic security should be a basic human right. Well, on that very powerful note. Thank you all. Thank you so much to the to all the panelists for sharing your stories and your experience and wisdom. Next week, we're going to be talking a deep dive yet again into childcare because this is an ongoing burning house crisis and really looking at what's it going to take to move the United States from where we are to something that works for all people, all families. In the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, and we'll see you next week.